we may now consider together <coughs> words you will find in the first epistle of Peter, the second chapter. The first epistle of Peter and the second chapter. We shall read from verse 21. First Peter chapter 2 reading from verse 21. For even hereunto were he called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that he should follow his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sins should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. For ye were as sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. <clears throat> Last Sabbath morning, <clears throat> uh, we um, endeavor to deal with the uh, the 21st verse and this morning as we shall be enabled we shall um, gather together our thoughts on the 22nd and the 23rd verses namely who did no sin neither was a guile found in his mouth who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. <clears throat> Generally speaking, <clears throat> we have here the character of the Lord Jesus set before us as it was expressed both in what he did and in what he did not. <clears throat> it is said of him that he did no sin neither was guile found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. Again, we may remind ourselves of the fact that this is said of him as the example of the church. 
the example he left of bearing patiently the suffering that came upon him for well doing. <clears throat> if he do well and suffer for it and bear this patiently, this is acceptable to God. For even Christ suffered, leaving us an example. And this is the example. He did no sin. Neither was guile found in his mouth. What an example. Now, if he were nothing but an example, this would be but to mock our impotence, to laugh at us in our distress. He did no sin, and he is the example. The conclusion is irresistible. Those who name his name ought to do no sin if he is to be their example. But the apostle goes further. He says, neither was guile found in his mouth. There wasn't even a suspicion of deceit, of hypocrisy, of lack of integrity in all his doings and in all his thoughts. The sinlessness of Jesus is most emphatically set before us here. And let us always remember that this in itself is a moral miracle. In the chaos of man's sin, in a world distorted by wrongdoing, there appears one who is so far removed from this general condition as to stand on a plane of his own. This is nothing short of, and nothing other than, a miracle. From the anthropological, the sociological, and the, the psychological, this is a miracle. The sinlessness of Jesus. is um, something that is set before us not only as our example but as a matter of the greatest wonder. Now unfortunately in the history of the church there were those who held to the sinlessness of Jesus and yet who disputed his deeds. 
That we take it is an impossible position. <clears throat> this is of such a nature that we must take one of two positions. A third is impossible. It is ruled out in the very nature of things. We must adhere to the sinlessness of Jesus and therefore to his deity. Or we must let both go. We cannot hold to the one and not to the other. As is always the case in this connection, we are confronted with two alternatives. And the third is impossible. We must either allow his claims, his own claims for himself, and his servants' claim for him. We must allow this, or else we must place it on the level of a deceiver, if not on the level of a madman. These are the issues that confront us. There is no room left for patronizing nonsense. No room left for exalting the example of Jesus and making him out to be a mere man. The data furnished excludes that conclusion. His sinlessness is an irresistible proof, a conclusive proof of the validity of his claims that he was and is not a mere man but God in our nature as we so often remind you that is not easy to believe only the unthinking would for a moment suggest Carless maintain that it is easy to believe. It is. It isn't easy to believe at all. It appears to contradict the basic exercise of man's intellect. It isn't easy. No man can say that Jesus Christ is Lord except through the Holy Ghost. No man can say that he is Lord except through the Holy Ghost. That's the testimony of Scripture. And it is the testimony that meets squarely the whole case. It meets the condition of man who whatever he may think and whatever he has been taught will not accept that God was manifest in the flesh. The human intellect rebels against that. 
it will not accept it. Whatever teaching one may have had. But what the human intellect rebels against, it's not necessarily true. That is, what we would demand is not necessarily the truth, certainly the truth as it appears to us, which is a different matter entirely. And how, when does a man believe this, that Jesus Christ is Lord? When he has the evidence. Belief is impossible, but on the basis of evidence. And only the Holy Spirit can supply the evidence. The evidence that will make a man believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. The evidence that will make him worship with another say, my Lord and my God. He did no sin. A moral miracle we repeat. Neither was guile found in his mouth. <clears throat> examined, cross-examined, and cross-examined again. All the judges had to return the same verdict. I find no fault. And that is recorded for uh, the information of all generations. Despite the sentence of condemnation, there is the verdict. I find no fault in it. So Pilate said, so Herod said, so the devil said, so God said. The same testimony. He did no sin. Or the form in the original is even stronger than this. It means who never did sin. Neither was there at any time guile found in his mouth. Who never did sin. Again let us remind ourselves that this is the example. There is no excuse for sin. Not for the slightest sin. If there is such. No excuse whatsoever. There may be a lot of explanation, but there's no justification for sin at all. It cannot be justified in the moral universe of God. But there is sin, you say, oh yes. There must be sin, as things are. That is true. But there's no justification for it. There is explanation, of course. It may be explained, but never justified. And may we have this at least. May we have this much of the spirit of truth. That we will not justify our sins. Perhaps there is nothing so near. The hardness of heart. 
which bespeaks reprobation. Babus, the effort of man to justify the sin. It is bad enough to sin, but it is worse when people try to justify it to themselves or to others. There's no room here for that. He did no sin. And he, and he only, is the example. Neither was guile found in his mouth. You remember what James says? If a man is able to bridle his tongue, that is a perfect man. Able also to bridle his whole, whole body. While the sinlessness of Jesus extends to every particular of his activity, to every particular of his moral nature, there isn't that hint, a suspicion of moral corruption to be found anywhere about him at all. This then is the one of whom Peter is speaking. And he has asserted this before. He has asserted this in the first chapter. When he says, he have not been, he have not been redeemed from your vain conversation by such things as silver and gold, but by the precious blood of Christ, as the blood of Allah, without blemish and without spot. Here he repeats the same thing in different words. There was no guile. What is guile? And the word guile is not often used nowadays. <clears throat> it's equivalent is um, uh, in more prevalent use, namely deceit. There was no deceit in his mouth. In this particular connection, it means he made no effort to escape. the verdict that was passed on after he had been arrested after he had been brought to the tribunal of Pilate and of Herod and of the chief priests he could easily have so presented his own case as to make his condemnation impossible. You know, there's a way of presenting cases. And the same case can be presented in many different ways. Sometimes it can be presented with guile or deceit. There may be nothing untrue in what is said. Yet the facts are so arranged as to give a different impression from what the actual facts are. Truth, as someone has said, depends as much on emphasis as on actual statement. 
Now a case can be presented in such a way as to give it an entirely different slant from what it is in actual fact. Now in the case of Jesus, and perhaps this, this stands out more prominently than anything else, there isn't the slightest effort to evade the point of the accusations brought against him. There is no resort to deceit in the slightest degree. When he does speak, he speaks the facts plainly, so that no one is left in doubt. When he was before the tribunal of the high priest, the charge was that he had blasphemed, that he had said he was the son of God. Now he's asked about this, art thou the son of God? His reply is direct and to the point, I am, I am. In another way we have it in the, in the Aramaic idiom, where it is said, Thou sayest that I am, that means exactly, I am. And there was no need to call any more witnesses. That's what Caiaphas said. What further need have we of witnesses? We have heard from his own mouth the blasphemy. But he acts, as Matthew tells us, henceforth. Nevertheless, nevertheless, henceforth he shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of the glory of God. There is no attempt made, there made, to evade the charge. There was no guile found in his mouth. And perhaps Peter is thinking of the scene which he himself had witnessed. Maybe, and it is very likely, that he is living again that never to be forgotten night in the palace of the high priest. As he contrasted the conduct of Jesus with his own conduct. There we see the Lord of glory in all the majesty of his untainted character standing in the midst of his enemies. And of course, there is no trial so severe as the trial a man has to face in the midst of his enemies. It is the way we conduct ourselves in the midst of our enemies that shows what we're made of. Now if you contrast the quiet dignity, the guilelessness of Jesus with Peter's conduct, when he realized 
He was in the midst of his enemies. He became a coward, a liar, a deceiver. He was very brave in the garden. He took a sword. He was in the midst of friends there. He took a sword and cut off the right ear of the, of the high priest, sir. But in the palace of the high priest, he has nothing to say. He wants to evade all questions. He wants to hide himself. But he wasn't successful in that. There were those who saw and recognized him. And he has resorted to subterfuge and deceit. I am not. I am not this man's disciple. I am not. Probably. Peter is thinking of this as he pens these words. He never said. Neither was guile or deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he reviled not again. And this is another outstanding characteristic, an outstanding feature of the trial of Jesus. How often do we read? He answered not a word. He answered not a word. As the prophet long ago had predicted, he is brought as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. He opened not his mouth. He gave no answer. So that Pilate marked. There were so many strange things about this trial. Pilate marked. He had never met one like this before. Whatever was brought against him, that is, whatever of her personal nature was brought against him, he, he did not deny. He only replied when the interests of truth demanded it. He never spoke for the sake of clearing himself of a charge. He certainly never spoke to deny what the false witnesses brought against him. When he was revived, when he was charged with being a cheat and a madman, he revived not again. When he suffered, he threatened not. Now here, as always, there is a direct connection between the propositions of the apostle 
when he was reviled did he suffer when he was reviled did he suffer he certainly did only he himself knows what he suffered in being reviled when he was numbered with the transgressors charged with hypocrisy, deceit, and ungodliness. He suffered. But that was not all his sufferings. Pilate scourged him. Yet he threatened not. He never spoke. To remind Pilate of the consequences of his actions. He threatened not. Now men have various ways of threatening. They threaten those in whose power they find themselves. They threaten them with vengeance of some kind either with the vengeance of man or with the vengeance of God. He never threatened them. He never even said, God will look after you for this or God will have vengeance. What did he say? Father, forgive them. Or they know not what they do. He threatened them not. He prayed for their forgiveness. When he suffered, he threatened not. He didn't re- he didn't resort to um, to what mo- many resort to when they have no other redress. They call down the vengeance of God on the head of their persecutors. Jesus didn't do that. He prayed for them. He prayed for those at whose hands he suffered. So far was he from threatening that he prayed for their forgiveness. What a glorious example. What a godlike example. Yea, this is God's example. He left an example that ye should follow his steps. When he was revived, he revived not again. He did not, at this point and in this connection, he didn't adopt the policy of those who say, we'll pay you back in your own coin. That is very gratifying to human nature. Very gratifying to be able to pay others back in their their own coin. And that may be the philosophy of worldly wisdom. It is not the philosophy of Christianity. 
because that is not the example that Christ left. He reviled not again when he suffered he threatened but there is something he did do he committed himself now you will notice in your bibles that the word himself is written in italics the word himself is not in the original at all it is uh, like this he committed to him that judgeth righteously what did he commit to him? Well, there are various interpretations of that. But I think that the, the quintessence of all that is said may be put into the word he committed his case. Not only himself personally, he did that. One of the sayings from the cross is, Into thy hearts I commend or commit my spirit. He committed himself in that, in that way. But there seems to be more than that involved in this particular instance. He committed his kiss in all its implications and ramifications. The whole kiss, he committed it to him who judged righteously. He wasn't, he didn't take upon himself to judge. He certainly judged and he judged righteously. For, but for the execution of the sentence of equity, he, of that, you see, he relieved himself. He committed it into the hands of him who judged righteously. His whole case, everything about it. And we have to remember here that there is much in this case. It is not an ordinary case. Yea, it is a unique case. So far from it being an ordinary case, there is no other case that can be compared with it. It is unique. This is a transaction that has no parallel in God's moral universe. He suffered being innocent. His sinlessness and his sufferings are placed side by side. Now this calls for an examination of the principles that underlie the whole of morality, the whole of God's government. How is a sinless person suffering? How does justice allow it? We often hear, in connection with the um, disagreeable things of the, the disagreeable things of this life, we often hear, how does God allow such things? It is usually prefaced 
with, a, with the hypothesis that if there is a God, how does he allow such things? Oh, it is admitted, my friends, that there are difficulties in connection with God's government. Difficulties that no man can solve. But this, this is the most difficult of all. If that question can be asked, we dispute the fact that it can be rightly asked of any sinner. But it certainly can be asked here. Yea, it must be asked here. How is this allowed to happen? How is the sinless permitted to suffer under the righteous government of God? How? Well, the apostle is careful to answer that question. And he answers it in the next in the next um, verse who bear our sins in his own body to the tree or on the tree both ideas have to be taken into consideration he bear our sins and the word bear there means to be brought as a sacrifice. It is the word used of the sacrifice that is brought to the altar. Perhaps the best rendering we could have may be in the words he carried and offered up. He bid us in in his own body to the tree. That is the explanation with which we shall deal at some future day. God permitted us. But in conclusion, let us remind ourselves again of the example that has been left left to the church of God to follow, to follow closely. Let us remind ourselves that to come up to this is impossible. The word used for example is, it's used of writing. Uh, most of us are familiar with this, at least uh, in my time in school, we had a copy and on the top of the page there was written what we were to copy. But it was written in such a way, it was written so well that um, at that stage it would be impossible for us to make a true copy of it. Well, that is precisely the word that Peter uses here. Um, he uses the words that were used of such writing. Writing that was made specially so that others would copy it and thereby learn to write well. But no child, of course, as he begins to learn writing, can do it the way it is done on the book. It is impossible. Nevertheless, this is to be the child's aim. 
to write in this way, in a way that is set down for an example. Well, that is precisely how it is in the moral and spiritual universe. Precisely, exactly. No Christian can ever come up to it. It is impossible. Nevertheless, this should be the A. Nothing short of it should be the A. And while the mark may be missed again and again and again, yet this is what God has set before his church as an example to follow. Christ, who never did sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed his case to him who judged righteously. Let us pray. O Lord, do thou bless us. Bless us according to the riches of thy grace. Enable us to discern what thou requirest of us. And that what thou requirest is dictated by the perfection of thine own nature, not by what we are. Of necessity thou requirest absolute perfection, and nothing else can ever pass the divine test. O Lord, help us to see that we come short. Help us to understand more and more our need of thy mercy in Christ Jesus. Bless thy word unto us and take away our sins for the Redeemer's sake. Amen.